Welcome to Good News, Bad News, the Libertarian Christian Roundtable, where every other week we challenge the status quo and give you the libertarian Christian analysis of what's happening in your world. Hey, welcome back to Good News, Bad News. I'm Norman Horn. This is the Libertarian Christian Institute's Christian Libertarian Roundtable. And with me tonight, I have got my good friends, Carrie Baldwin, Aaron Sepulvedaque, and our guest for tonight is the le- one and only legendary Olivia Langarica from Mexico <laughs> herself. And so welcome, Olivia, to Good News, Bad News. How are you Thank doing Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me here. It's my first time, and I am a little bit nervous. But, and I apologize for my English in advance. <laughs> oh, you, you know what? We're we're glad to have you here. Olivia has been a growing part of the organization. Uh, she has been active in helping to translate uh, our book, Faith Seeking Freedom, into Spanish, which uh, is up and coming. It's We don't want to exactly put a, a, a release date on it at this point, but we're really excited that that November. is on the way. November? Is that what you're... Are you telling me November now? All okay. right. You heard it here first. You heard December. it here first. It's November. We're holding you to that. We're holding you yeah, to that, that now. January. <laughs> nope, nope. It's November now. You, you, uh, you're, you're there. Well, we have a, a bunch of fun stuff to talk about tonight. Uh, we want to we wanna really have kind of a, a, only a couple themes for tonight. Often we'll talk about some of the recent events in the news, but tonight we're going to kind of go with a main topic that's kind of spurred by one particular element of the news and then uh, getting into the dif- different elements of it. And that is the goodness and badness of social media itself. Uh, and it, and th- to an extent, this is uh, has been spawned by the recent revelation that none other than Elon Musk, who's become one of my <laughs> favorite people to observe, I've come completely full circle on Elon, I think in the last year or two, uh, but he's taken a massive stake in Twitter. And if you're unaware, he's taken nearly a 10% stake. I think it's like 9.2 or 9.5% uh, of, of, of a stake in Twitter, which is massive. I mean, this is something on the order of a, of, of a multi-billion dollar investment at that point. And, uh, and that's, it's a pretty big deal, right? Uh, it has resulted in him being offered a board seat, him turning down a board seat, people saying they're going to leave Twitter, uh, other organizations saying we will not hire you if you left Twitter, <laughs> and, which is pretty funny. Um, yeah, but, it, stack, yeah. but it does it does kind of raise this big issue about of that is kind of endemic to our age at this point, which is what does social media mean to all of us? And uh, and so that's what we're going to kind of talk about tonight is uh, is the efficacy of social media, how important it is to us, and you know the problems that it presents. And, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, to kind of also set the stage there, uh, it's worth noting that some of our libertarian compatriots over at the Soho Forum and Reason, uh, namely Gene Epstein, the founder and, and, uh, and uh, the man who runs Soho Forum, and our friend Robbie Soav at Reason uh, had, did a debate uh, recently with none other than Jonathan Haidt. Uh, who's a really well-known author and uh, and university professor. Uh, he wrote The Righteous Mind, The Coddling of the American Mind. The guy's really smart. And in fact, Robbie and Jonathan are friends and they you know, are, are kind of colleagues in a manner of speaking, even though they differ on a number of issues. Uh, but this debate was about whether or not the federal government should even uh, begin to regulate social media more. And, uh, and so that was, that was pretty interesting. And then Haidt uh, even had an article in The Atlantic recently about comparing 
modern social media to kind of a renewed tower of Babel, if you will. Now, if you've been around LCI for a while, you kind of, you may know what my position is in our, how we interpret the tower of Babel, you know, from the book of Genesis. Uh, we don't need to get into that in particular, but he kind of makes the analogy that it's bringing everybody in a bunch of different languages together and it has the capacity to break apart and, and, you know, dismember a whole bunch of stuff while it's at it. Now, and, what, what, what I will mention there that I was, I was listening was, for example, the issue of Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, and Russia, whatever we were doing here in the United States, there were, it was immediately done everywhere else in the world. Like there is a sort of homogenizing effect without delay. It's not like, okay, the fashion we have right now is little by little going to go someplace else. It's going to change on its way, adapting to the cult, local cultures and whatever. No, no, there's, there's absolutely no delay whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it's like everybody's just the whole society, the whole world is culturally uh, uh, homogenized completely. So that can be good. That can be bad. I have no clue because I'm not a sociologist, but it is interesting that there's no delay <laughs> on the transmission of, of, of culture and ideas. Well, I think there's no doubt that the internet and particularly social media has changed the way changed the way we have interacted with one another um, in both good ways and bad ways. I mean, I wouldn't be able to speak with Olivia if it wasn't for the internet. Exactly. Uh, um, <laughs> and, we and frankly, we so, would imagine we barely would have discovered her if not for social media. Right. With, well, with respect to our, our dear, lovely lady there. You yeah. know, um, <laughs> We have an opportunity, and and we've seen this. We saw this with uh, with the Canadian trucker convoy. Mm -hmm. um, that when things happen across the world, we're able to um, you know participate in it in, in some fashion, indirectly, perhaps. But we're able to see it happening in almost real time, and you know that has an impact certainly on how we interact, how we perceive the world, those sorts of things. But I think that there's this, you know, there's there's this hesitation, there's this, this sort of drawing back and saying, mm, is this really a good idea? Is social media really a good idea? Maybe we should be pulling back. Maybe this is becoming a problem. And I think that, um, you know, we're learning how to adapt to it. It's certainly a new thing that we didn't have growing up um and so there's going to be adaptation to it there was for a very long time it was a new shiny thing and we jumped into it <laughs> head first um and now we're sort of starting to reevaluate its uses um but i i guess i see i see more benefits than i see detriments to it um and any detriments are just a matter of of adapting and and choosing Either to regulate ourselves internalize mm -hmm. so well some of the, and some of the criticisms of social media seem to smack of the same kind of criticisms that occurred back in when things that we would normally now consider completely benign or even completely at this point deprecated uh, to other technologies as being earth-shattering the sky is falling, falling, and so on. You know, civilization is coming to an end. And we're talking about things like bicycles or the radio, <laughs> right? Or you know, I mean, you know, robots are coming to steal our jobs because you know we have automatic buttons now on a elevator 
or something to that effect. I mean, these are now there are different degrees of of what that I think looks like. And, you know, even even Jonathan Haidt argues even to against that point in his debate with Soav about, you know, that 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 kind of has a bit of survivorship bias is that we see those technologies that, you know, did survive and didn't affect versus those that died on the vine, uh, you know, or, or, <laughs> or versus those that did get regulated and then became obsolete or something to that. I mean, there, there's different, different progressions of technology that have had different types of trajectories. I don't mm -hmm. think it's a, it's a perfectly fair argument, but it is interesting to consider as well. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, there are some easy to see downsides um, to what social media can do. Um, and there, you know, anybody, anybody can find a way to lose self-control in a variety of different scenarios, like just put the right thing in front of them, right. you know, and it's going to, and it can mess somebody up. Right. I mean, but it's all due to the choices of individuals rather than some type of deterministic technology, the way that some of these people like to, talk about this stuff is, is it's on the order of addiction you know to where oh you're compulsively now gonna have to fall into it well and i, I don't think, like that <laughs> i think i think i think it can fall into addiction but you know addiction is also something that is revealing of something deeper and so exactly. i think what you what, what you get with social media is i mean i think the most obvious thing that got revealed using social media was this um, you know, bias in corporate media, the old traditional, mm -hmm. you know, news organizations, and the fact that, hey, we could actually corroborate their stories, we could dig in and see if they were telling the truth, we can, we can explore alternatives now. And that was something you didn't have before. So social media has this revealing effect. Yeah. You know, it, it reveals these deeper things that maybe people are struggling with as as individuals as human beings. Um, I think we need to be very cautious about saying, oh, social media has caused this. Um, that's, yeah. that's a completely different ball of wax. Well, and it's interesting you bring it, you bring it up like that, with you, especially using the word reveal. Even the new science of addiction, which I, I, it is appropriate to call it kind of the new science of addiction. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I should, I should back up and suggest what does that mean? You know, there, there's historically, even, even amongst our, our you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, we often, we've talked in the past about addiction as being um, not just a mere dependency, but like this measure of compulsion uh, that is un, that is unable to be uh, released from. And mm -hmm. that's a, it's, it's, you know, it, so beyond, beyond mere chemical dependence, but some sort of your loss of will is what is really going on here. And that's why th there was such, this, there was such a, uh, there, there's such a backlash against, you know, being, you know, addicted to anything. So suddenly right. like your will is being abrogated. Right. But what, what I think the new, the new science is beginning to, to, uh, to show us is that addiction is really just revealing the lack of healthy relationships because relationally mm -hmm. is how you get out of it. Yes. Right. So if yes. you lack healthy relationships to help you relate to the world around you, you're going to find something to make you feel safe and you know and content 
Right. That's what these things do. Even if it has a drawback, even if it has a withdrawal symptom or all these, I mean, that's the whole point of these drugs and whatnot. And that doesn't mean that, you know, oh, well, as long as you got healthy relationships and doing all the drugs is a good thing yeah. or something like that. That's not what we're trying to say here, uh, but rather that the best protection against these sorts of things is to be in good relationships with people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, perhaps, so what is social media revealing here? When it, when, you know, we hear things like Heights argument about how uh, teenage depression is up a, a, you know, to a much greater incidence, you know, in, in the last 10 years um, than we've seen in the past. Well, even if that is a caused primarily by social media, what that ought to be telling us is, well, doggone, maybe we need to be examining how well our parents are relating to teens, or maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, parents need to, you know, (laughs) parents need to get more involved in their kids you know behaviors and whatnot or the effects you know? of the, the effects of public schooling on kids doggone I mean, who would have thought yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's actually interesting I, I remember reading a study about how um they were they were thinking that there's a possibility that kids who like teens who get access to marijuana are actually unwittingly self-medicating for adhd Mm. Um, and ADHD is directly connected to uh, trauma and and poor relationships and families. So um, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's important that we that we understand that this. Well, it does have social media does have a revealing effect. The way we've thought about uh, uh, addictions in the past is probably inaccurate, um, mm. and you know, certainly all of it, even the critics of social media would say that uh, one of the things that we should really be looking into are um, cultivating healthy relationships once again. So, And I think this leads to another interesting point that is kind of contra Jonathan Haidt. Um, And, you know, and and by the way, you know, for those of who will be interested, we'll make sure and link in our show notes and even in the YouTube video or in the podcast page, wherever you're happen to be listening to this uh, links to these additional articles and whatnot um, that you can that you can go take a look at and hopefully you'll find benefit from them. Um, But one one, you know, thing that Hype mentions in his article about. Uh, well, it's, I think it's called against, is it against Babel or a new Babel? I'm forgetting off the top of my head or Um, whatever it is, Babel, uh, that, that one of the results of the social media craze has been a loss of trust in institutions now. Okay. I'll certainly that, that we, we might say to some extent, like, Hey, that's a good thing, but it also could be the case that it's the other way around that there is a loss of trust in institutions, which is driving people to go these up to these other sources in order to find uh, elements of, uh, well, trying to understand truth better. Right now that's, so what does that mean? Well, maybe that is like, you know, loss of trust in say the church or your family or, you know, the education, like your, your educational community that's around you. Cause you know, screw public schools, but you know, there is still a social component to them that is that provides a measure of balance uh, to people. And, you know, Just they have a project real quick. The, yeah. um, as far as I understand really well, the Jehovah Witnesses, since the Internet came along, let's say when, you know, people started using it very heavily, they really had no way to protect their uh, their people from all the silly stuff that happened let's say in the 70s and 60s, because all the documentation was there, and it completely transformed that 
social institution or that that sect. So the impact of the internet, even without social media, still talking about it, it is very real in, in, mm -hmm. in social oh, yeah. institutions. No doubt. Well, and to some degree, there's a question of are have these institutions been trustworthy in all the areas they claim to be trustworthy in? Yeah. Um, that's something worth exploring. But along with that, um, you know, we don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We don't want to say, um, okay, the public education system is is toxic and terrible for, ch for children, but does that necessarily mean that um, private education uh, options are a bad thing? And maybe not. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I kind of I did not get all the way through Jonathan Haidt's Atlantic article because <laughs> it was a little exhausting. But, you know, I, I if I had a, a, a criticism for him, it was that he lamented too much the lack of trust in institutions um, and didn't talk about the fact that uh, there might be a good reason why we're not trusting those institutions right now. And we need to we need to explore that, and that's been made possible by social media, and the internet. Well, it, the, push, it, the push for institutions to improve. Hmm? But we, but it, like even as part of our, improve. right? Okay, but but let's not let's not confuse. I, I well, or shall I say, the lumping of any any type of institution altogether in this respect is not is should not be overlooked. So if this, if this helps to build distrust in the state, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I you think know. it has. Yeah, Including... absolutely. And, and corporate yeah. media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've, so we, we see a corresponding increase in trust elsewhere as a result, because you're going to have to put your trust in something, mm -hmm. you know, um, we're not, no, nobody, well, there are nihilists out there, but we're not completely there. <laughs> Okay, but you're saying that there's an increase in trust in other areas of life. You kind of have to. Okay, I don't know about that, but well, you when you, you place right. your trust in you know what you're what you're garnering from Instagram or something to that effect. I mean, that's what there, they're that's what they're there doing. There might be there might be a pendulum swing effect. You know, it's not necessarily that what they're putting their trust in now is is any better yeah. than before. I mean, ideally, ideally the um, the sort of revelation of ways in which you know these institutions have harmed us yeah. should lead to us thinking about these things more deeply coming to more nuanced um you know thoughts and ideas about them and that may not be the case i mean to to his credit jonathan Hyde has done a tremendous job in talking about academic freedom and mm. free speech in the free speech at the university level and has recognized far earlier than most how crucial the upcoming years would be in the as free speech was getting you know attacked at, mm -hmm. at, at, on college campuses and university campuses worldwide. Okay, so why is that important? Well, it turns you know that 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 does in, involve in some sense, or the the fallout of that is a loss of trust in the in, in the institution, right. and that's that on some level you could say oh well that's a good thing because there's a lot of bad stuff that happens at universities granted totally agree with you there however you know that is that erosion over time um is is what we wanted to avoid in the first place it should be the case that we want 
our best and our and our brightest people who are in uh you know the intellectual circles to be of robust intellectual quality who are producing good and new knowledge who have the freedom to say things that are going to be controversial that things are going to get debated without the you know the fear of reprisal just immediately which is no longer mm-hmm. the case anymore at universities with the rise of wokeism and so on mm-hmm. okay and so you know all these things working together to you know result in a loss of trust uh is you know okay well that is that has a negative effect too and it may be it, and i'm not going to i'm not here to argue like you know the the point about like well fewer people should go to college which i think is probably true and so on um but well I think the market response should be to compete then with those institutions that have failed us in one way or another. The it's new not necessarily compete against the old ones. Right. Yes. It's, it's it's not so much that we need well it's like I said before we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. right? But if you know if if a business pr- starts to provide a poor service over time and the consumer figures that out um, they're going to look elsewhere and that's an opportunity for innovation. So, um, you know, in one sense, we can lament the fact that our institutions of higher learning, for example, have failed us in, uh, academic freedom. But on the other hand, that's, that is an opportunity to, to innovate so that we can have that. 100% agree. The, the challenge there is that what you, the, the beauty of the university system in, in its good form mm-hmm. was that you have sort of a, uh, a historical backing to it. That mm-hmm. part of the reason that you could trust it was because of its lineage and history. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so long as it was continuing to produce, like you had, th- th- it was a good thing. Like right. it, 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 you have this very robust framework for vetting ideas through things like peer review um there was a there were good reasons to have things like tenure and i mean all these things worked out really nicely and well uh for a lot of really good reasons Mm. however you know it didn't it hasn't taken nearly as long to erode that and make it you know so much less valuable than it once was the problem even with trying to say yeah like yeah that's an opportunity for innovation is that it's going to take some measure of time in order to build up reputation and trust in the new institution. Right. We want those strong institutions so that we can have levels of trust that the that the information that we're receiving is good. I mean, what do you what, like? If, think about it even in terms of the way we t- think about churches. Mm-hmm. Which one? Which one are you going to trust? And I'm gonna I'm gonna ruffle some feathers. Here's the hot take, right? Do you trust? <laughs> the random non-denominational church that just showed up down the road and put out a big old banner and, and, you know, say that saying, come learn theology here, or are you going to be more interested in, you know, Concordia seminary down the road that has a a 100 year history of, of doing good theological teaching and a reputation of hiring good professors and and a board that you know about. And like, the answer is freaking clear, right? Right. Yeah. There you go. So, uh, I guess the point is, is that there's, there's, um, there is a, there is a loss. There's an in- opportunity for innovation and gain, but it's, it's not, it's not symmetrical. <laughs> mm. Well, if anything, the takeaway that we should come away with this is that, uh, you know, our 
our actions have consequences and they may not be seen for decades um you know however long that is uh so when people start talking about these these ideas like hey maybe we shouldn't actually be censoring facebook over covid lockdowns or whatever it is yeah um you know there's there are consequences for for our actions and we don't necessarily see what those consequences are going to be um we just know hey censorship is a bad idea because we've seen that you know in history that it's that it's a bad idea yeah and again i i you know we're kind of critiquing Hyde here to his again I keep saying like to his credit because right, I, I do right. want to somewhat like even though I highly just disagree with many of Hyde's ideas I think he's got uh, he's got many prescient things to say and important mm-hmm. things to listen to uh so to his credit that's not what he's asking for which is you know you know well, he's not asking for, for that. that level of like that <laughs> yeah that's not what he's gunning for per se yeah um his concern is very much for and so my disagreements with him are things of like well how do you interpret this data how do you right. think about how do you think about the this cause and effect sort of deal and uh to to his credit like I, that's not what he's asking for he's more interested in things like you know okay if i mean if it is the case that uh that depression is on the rise with uh young you know uh, preteen and teen women because of the way that instagram mm-hmm. Uh, is dealing is talking about womanhood womanhood and so on and so forth um how should that be dealt with i disagree i I potentially would disagree on the premise i would i have disagreements (laughs) with him even if that is true what he might do about it but at least he's asking a question that is not just like we need facebook to not you know to 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 not set let anybody say anything that's negative about a vaccine a lockdown or you know the lab theory or something in in so in so far as he is raising the red flag we should take a look at it as a culture yeah um uh, you know any (laughs) any uh what's the word i'm looking for any desire on his part to sort of uh strong arm a uh a solution particularly through social media regulation i would strongly recommend against yeah. obviously we we all would but um yeah raising raising the red flag is one thing saying mm-hmm. hey the government needs to do something about this is a completely other thing uh especially since our culture today is in a terrible habit of turning to the government for just about every single problem we have well and and it, you know there are so many good things to learn from trying to understand technology at kind of a meta level uh, mm-hmm. Whether you're going back and reading, you know, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is highly recommended, uh, or more recently, you know, taking a look at A World Without Email by Cal Newport, which is a great book, mm-hmm. um, and realizing, you know, that that technologies are not just purely neutral. I mean, right. that's not a, it's just not a, <laughs> that's not what happens when you introduce new technology into the world. So just being mindful of what's happening in this regard and you know kind of being ready especially as parents uh to to observe and be and be more mindful about what our kids are consuming uh and why uh and just continuing to to be to be active in that i think that's a good thing as far as as i understand uh big ceos try to not depend upon social media or even the phone as much as we regular people do so 
<laughs> they, yeah, they, they, they discipline themselves. They so say because of the distraction issue, right? I mean, that, that's they, all. It's not a big deal. It's just they say that all the Silicon Valley CEOs don't allow their kids on the technology that I they, would like to know that, that they've developed. Well, like but all of them. That's, and that, I, that's, that's what I've heard. A, I don't. I don't know that that's true. There are that's what I've heard. there are other confounding reasons, not not that are beyond like, oh, this is dangerous in terms of their mental development or something. It actually, right, there, right. it also has to do with the potential. I mean. That those those guys live in very different worlds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. way. and they need yeah. that protection. Yeah, that's. I mean, uh, that's really kind of the case. I mean, you have possible, you know, everything from predators to you know people trying to just take advantage of their kids, or sense. people trying to weasel their way into the business somehow. That, I mean, the, there's the baseball player from the New York Giant, New York Yankees, <laughs> Alex Rodriguez. I think he was forbidden for you to coming into the house with to his house with a phone that's it doesn't matter if he was like flip phone wow. or whatever you live outside you can come in and we can have a party no phones allowed that's it end of the story so but you, as yeah. you said it's a different life that's not on that's not uncommon i mean you remember recently when i think it was like that uh barack obama had a birthday party or something like that and in on uh martha's in martha's vineyard where he has a house and and oh, something yeah. that was unusual was that they actually allowed phones in and the pictures started circulating and it uh -huh. were unmasked and it was oh my god it's a scandal you know yeah you know what that's why i mean that's why right. they do that sort of stuff at times so just don't yeah. don't forget that those people live in a different world <laughs> yes they do <laughs> in more ways than one more ways than one more <laughs> ways than one well that's a, that's a pretty good way perhaps of wrapping that up i suppose uh so um but on to on to something else that we thought was interesting we have our our, our resident mexican economist uh with us <laughs> <laughs> and uh and, and also and we <laughs> yeah. well and and we're we're you know, you guys have been talking uh, uh, recently about some interesting insights you could have been gaining from reading none other than the founder of Austrian economics itself, Carl Menger. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for those of us who do care a lot about Austrian econ and learning it deeply, tell us what you guys have been learning and uh, what sorts of insights have, have you been garnering? Okay, Olivia, the name of the book in Spanish is? Uh, Dinero. In uh <laughs> Dinero. In English, yeah. Okay, so. this is super weird, guys. Uh, money, you guys. The, the English speakers money. are gonna, uh, yeah, yeah, literally just money. There's two books that are related to this from uh, from Menger. It's the Origins of Money on. Ah, from, okay. Yeah. That does different from 18. Let me get down because I, oh, I got it here. Okay. Okay, 1890, I think. Uh, and then 1892. Now and then in uh, 1909. Menger continued to write and kind of like improve upon the origins of money, adding a bunch of bunch of stuff that in the English speaking world, when they create when they translated the original that the 1989 book in Spanish is Dinero in English, they didn't translate the title to money. They trans they just kept the the German word uh, Geld. So it's mm -hmm. Geld 1909, and it was translated into the year 2001 2002. Nobody had touched it for almost a hundred years. Wow. And it's inside a book with a bunch of articles. It's literally like one article among many articles. It's just in a crazy weird way that it happened in, in the English speaking world. So, and if you try to find it physically, I'm kidding you not, guys. If you find it is gold, the cheapest one is $500 physical. <laughs> Holy <laughs> cow. <laughs> what? In English. In Spanish, they go for a dollar. In Spanish. <laughs> 
and Olivia. Oh, no, not for a dollar. Well, that seems that seems normal. I don't know what you're talking about. Twenty and Olivia euros. Can get you one. Twenty euros. There you go. Twenty twenty euros. Okay, so this is why I found this so, so interesting. I wanted English English speakers to know about these like kind of little details. There's a lot of works from Menger that were not really translated. Everything that happened in the 1900s for Menger, like all of his works are not even translated. As far as I got, I found out last year at the end that there's a second edition of the Principles of Economics, his most important book, has not been translated to any language. Mm -hmm. It just stayed in German and nobody has done it. Wow. Something weird happened that I still don't understand. Hmm. A lot of the work of Menger has not been translated to any language, to Spanish a little bit more than English. And then to English, when it gets translated, it gets like into this literally like compendiums of books that they just become like super expensive. So, yeah. but we have access to it through Olivia <laughs> uh, <laughs> at a very inexpensive way. So she can she, she, she can kind of let us know. And, and then she, she let me know of this uh, wonderful passage. Uh, I wanted to let you guys know, I was actually kind of looking into the full, full, uh, the full context. It is actually very related to what is happening today. Hopefully most of you guys have heard your Mo may, uh, mo mostly lefty friends complaining that inflation is caused by profits. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. That yeah, whole week, at least two weeks, you guys have been hearing that, right? Now, right. there's some legitimate concerns with that and that we can discuss that later on. But guess what was Menger trying to refute in that exact passage that Olivia found? People that thought that when prices rise, it has nothing to do with money. It's only because of the greedy merchants. That's ah. exactly what he was trying. And then he starts saying, uh, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the English translation uh, so that everybody knows." And he's mm -hmm. saying, "Look, he was, he went back all the way to Aristotle because Aristotle used to say those kind of things too." Just by the way, his second mistake. Remember, to, uh, once I said it, like he was allowed two mistakes, he made them, and that's it. Aristotle, yeah. <laughs> he made the two mistakes he was allowed, and that's it. Let me read it to you guys. This is super cool because he most come like, okay, there's a popular belief that it's kind of like merchants are to be blamed for absolutely everything because if there's high prices, it's because they're horrible sellers and stuff like that. Uh, Kerry did a great job a couple of weeks ago trying to show that, hey, guys, that's not the case. Prices have risen 8%, but production costs has risen even more. So right. a lot of merchants, a lot of small, mm -hmm. uh, small businesses have been taking losses, guys. Corporate profits is not the only profits in the economy, guys. There's right. much, much smaller businesses that are suffering a lot. And a lot has to do with the size of a corporation allows them to get a very, like whatever you see production costs, usually for a corporation is lower because in advance, they tend to buy materials and inputs at a much, much uh, bigger quantity. So they get discounts. So it's a completely different universe. So we do have to be careful. And, and, and you did a great job, Carrie, by the way. I really did like that time. Remember, I, I got a little bit uh, animated that time. Like, yeah, we're not did. talking enough about it. Oh. <laughs> Be, you see, because it's kind of like a real thing. Like, okay, right. they want to blame. Like, anything happens to corporations, the great thing for co corporations, never going to get rid of small businesses because whatever happens to corporations, people are going to end up like taking it on the small businesses. Like, honestly, corporations mm -hmm. never going to get rid of, of a small guy just because it's like a, uh, a skateboard. But let, let me read it to you. After saying, look, these people... Think this crazy stuff even aristotle kind of like as an aristotelian manger said you know even aristotle kind of you know he was kind of wake on that one he says any impartial analysis of market phenomena makes us recognize the far-reaching influence exerted exerted on the exchange ratio, ratio between money and the goods traded by the variations of the quantity 
of money in circulation, mm -hmm. the variation of the economy's demand for circulating media. I'll come back to that one, by the way. The increasing or decreasing production costs of the money metals, which means how difficult it is to produce the money itself. So it's still money right. related, not mm. really capitalist or something like that. The more or less increasing use of document money. Uh, start, we start using paper money. We use it more or less. And many other changes in the determining factors of price formation occurring only on the side of money and nothing to do with the production of goods and services. Do you guys see that? Like he was already yeah. trying to say, guys, money matters. There's, there's nothing for you to always blame it on the seller. Something's right. going on with the, with the medium of exchange. It's super, super important. And the reason why Olivia brought, brought, uh, brought attention to me, it was because we don't talk about in the Austrian school, Mrs. and even Hoppe did discuss this to say, if the money supply increases, and both Hoppe and Mrs. said, and the demand for money, which means ah, yes. your, mm -hmm. your, your, um, your desire to keep cash balances, which means to not spend right. the money you get. That's what I mean by demand for money. It's like how right, much right. cash you, how much cash you don't spend and how much cash you do spend. If the money demand stays stable, then prices rise. So the money supply causes prices to rise if the demand for money exactly stays stable. The big issue that we've been, and actually Bob kind of went through this back in 2008 to saying like, wait, what's going on? Prices, you know, money supply is shooting up and prices are shooting. I mean, they were like 2%, 3% in a bad year. Nothing like today, obviously, right? And right. the big issue that a lot of people were saying that, guys, you, we as Austrians, we need to pay a lot more attention to the demand for money. The money was created, but it wasn't chasing goods. It was literally just being stored. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, and that we don't emphasize it enough. And that's what, why we wanted to bring it up to, uh, to discussion for everybody. When we start discussing about the value of the dollar, do pay attention to all the dollars that get created. Are they really being used? And I'm not saying that they're not because you can see the inflation going up, but there's a large portion that is just sitting there doing nothing in banks or in the federal mm -hmm. reserve or even in the treasury department. Sometimes they have large amount of cash that they don't use for, you know, whatever the reasons are. So we just wanted to bring that to uh, the English speaking world because that book is great. And for some reason, it's actually difficult to find in English, uh, in the English version. So that's, so, I guess that's about so it. So we are seeing inflation. And so what goods are being chased then? Oh, they are, now. It's, now. <laughs> they're not being chased in the same proportion than the, the money supply increased, let's say 40% and inflation only increased 8%. So there's a big portion that is not chasing goods. See what I'm saying? That, I'm not sure. It, it might not map one to one, but but that's not really the point. I guess the we, the reason why we are seeing inflation at a greater rate than say you know what what occurred in uh, you know 2008, for instance, and is is that more due to the fact that we are seeing great like spikes in demand for certain types of goods and it, services? It yeah, there you go. okay. So that there was back in the days, there was a high spike on demand, which means all the cash was just being stored. High demand for cash, yes. low demand for goods and services. Yes. Today, a large portion got stored, stored, but not as much as back then. So here now you can say we have a little bit lower demand for cash and a higher demand for goods and services, and we have supply chains that are super slow because of the lockdowns and all the stuff in, in the world. The supply, the supply chain is so slow, but our money is more than readily available. Mm -hmm. Guess what's going to happen? That's going to end up pushing right. prices. Yeah. yeah. So bidding up prices. Ding. There you go. 
Yeah, yeah but what are well, those goods? I'm sorry, give me, Olivia, please. No, I just I just uh, wanted to add something. Something I was reading in in the Yield that um, Menger was uh, writing about the value of patron uh, or, the, or the value patron. Oh, of the, the, the gold of the, the gold standard. No, 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 not the gold standard for the intrinsic intrinsic exchange of goods, universal and invariable. Oh, okay. yeah. And, and he was writing about this and he, he found out that uh, the economist in general in his, in his age uh, was always trying to find um, uh, some good that the price of this good does, don't, uh, doesn't uh, fluctuate, yeah. doesn't change, doesn't uh, have variation to, to, to relate the, the, this um, lack of variation with all the, the, the goods. And, and and establish a, a, a price in order to establish a, pr a price, right? So we know, uh, uh, at least the Austrian economics, that the price is always uh, a variation, is always uh, changing. And and they, these economists in, in Menger's age uh, always try to find uh, a good that, uh, the price or he or its price doesn't variation, right? So Menger said, no, this is this is, can be true, and it's it's not possible because um, that will be so easy to 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 settle a price and to find out uh, what is the the cost of of the variation. But but any any uh, goods uh, have. Um, have a, a settled or a established price, right? Or established value. I, I was sorry for my English, but I'm trying right. to explain. And, and, and he was trying to explain that the money is always, a, is always or, or is also a good, right? The Austrian economics know, knows that um, the money is, is, the value of money is, is always is variation mm -hmm. uh, is very yeah and um he was trying to explain that uh, they doesn't know or we don't know as economists that when we try to find the 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 monetary prices in, in the goods where where we can find these monetary prices in the sight of money or in the sight of goods, right? I don't know if I can, I, 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 I'm explaining myself. Well, it, it, it is the same, like what, what, what I was telling you that sadly, for some reason, people always focus on on the good sites only depend upon what exactly. the seller decides only. Right. And, and, and he's pointing that in that uh, passage, it was to say, guys, we really do have to talk, talk about the quality of money the supply of money, the demand of money, because that's obviously going to affect the prices exactly. of, of goods and services. It's not just the decisions of the final seller saying, ah, because the money, because the money, because the price or the value of money is all is, is um, it is always uh, changing. The, also, they were expecting right? the value of money to be flat always, but it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. The, so now there's some of the additional theory that's been, I think, building up is rec the recognition of money as uh, as a game theoretic good, and that it are 
uh, and by that it is meant that uh, the value, the what, the value that an individual places on money is based on the anticipatory nature of what they think the future is going to look like. Yeah. So Looking if they with? have, you know, yeah. So that they have a, and and this is um, essentially the representation of of time preference in this regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that so there in our time preference change. Yeah. So and. Uh, part of what is built into that is not just what like, well, your valuation of it is based on the anticipation of what the other players in the game are going to value it as. Right. That's a huge, uh, a huge thing. I mean, it's why I was, I was also going to ask like in these hidden, in these hidden Mingarian analyses, did he, did, <laughs> did you discover that, you know, that Ming, that Carl Minger is actually Satoshi Nakamoto? Uh, but, <laughs> you know, they're, they're somewhat related from the, yeah, so, so, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's probably you know one reason why people like non-economists focus so much on goods and not money is because they don't understand that money is a good exactly yeah there you go. and that's there you go, that one. um yeah they just think money is money that's that's it um, you, you know what here here down in, in South Texas my mm-hmm. students kind of get that we're kind of blessed, if you wish, that the value of money can't, the, the money itself changes because as they go back and forth to, Me- uh, to Mexico or they know people that go back and forth, they actually see the value of the dollar change mm-hmm. against the peso and the peso against the dollar. And they'll ask you, sir, this sign that it changed very heavily, which one do you think was the cause? Was it the dollar that changed the most or was it the peso that changed the most? And those questions are, in fact, changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it happens. That's really that interesting. It was only the peso, and they can, and we actually talk about those differences. Now, today I can actually mm-hmm. say that it was really a peso, and then let's say a, a world recession. Recession is not really the peso; is that everybody wants dollars, and so now they see that it's only it's more of a dollar of a dollar issue. So I usually tell my students that here in South Texas, I have a little bit easier time teaching macro, just because they see different currencies being changed mm-hmm. back and forth. They can see these little details or actually pay attention to it. Uh, to those kind of details that the money itself is kind of like a just in, just another commodity among many just the most popular commodity yeah the two the the two lessons well i guess it's three lessons that that i do uh with my course which is based on uh bob murphy's book uh lessons for the young economist highly is, recommend it yes highly recommend it um you know it's it's explaining not only how prices are formed but uh and the fact that prices form without money um, without the existence of money because of exchange ratios. Um, but then it talks about why money arises and why that's, that's also a good, um, so he gives, he gives a great explanation of that and really breaks it down in a simple way. It's difficult though, to, you know, to just, you're right. You're, yeah, you're 100% right that people mistakenly understand money as a, as a non-good per mm-hmm. se but it is a very weird type of good yeah okay yeah. you know for instance um uh, in some sense you know money itself uh is kind of like a uh what's called a veblen good you familiar you're familiar with that term veblen good no I've never okay so of most of the time most of the time when what happened okay so if uh if the price goes up for a good um what is demand gonna do it's gonna go down right right yeah. Okay, that's that's typically what you expect is that as the as the price of something increases per, kind of perpetually demand is going to go down veblen goods are the opposite and so the demand for that for the, these types of goods actually goes up with increasing price 
and mm. this kind of and, and this kind of you can even understand this as it pertains to something like a bitcoin for yeah. instance which were you that interested in bitcoin when it was a dollar right probably not yeah you know but now that it's forty thousand dollars you're thinking hmm, maybe i need to get oh, in that's on interesting. this interesting yeah so uh money is very different as a type of good in you know in many respects than your typical you know consumption good or even your capital good to that extent so with inflation though didn't aaron didn't you say that the demand for the dollar has has gone up as well okay this is um they increase the money supply through the roof right i mean this is right crazy yeah. right 40 percent yeah if the money that demand for money that the start of people that get the they get the the new money um had not changed at all like it mm. was just flat mm -hmm. then everything would have gone into prices for the most part does it make sense like we just mm -hmm. be 40. now but because they they created this is the trick guys when they create money during a recession they do it because there's an increased demand for money which means for cash balances mm. people are less willing to spend during difficult times Mm -hmm. So in relation, if you want to say it this way, it's that demand for that money supply increased 40% or so. Prices rose about 8%, which means that most of the difference you can say that demand for money, the desire for people to risk, to keep cash in their cash balances because they're afraid of the future, obviously, uh, increased, let's say what it will be like uh, 30 to uh, 30 to 25% or something like that. So that desire, and that's usually not us, like regular middle classers and you know the uh, most of the population is big institutions that get cash from the Fed. Yes, <laughs> uh, sometimes they say, "Can we just keep this?" That's fine because you think about this. It's not like a house. As soon as you get money, you want to start paying your your bills, your debts. You know, mm -hmm. but but if a big financial institution gets new money, oh, it's gonna devalue with inflation. Well, don't worry about it. We're going to end up buying a financial asset later on. We might actually need this money later on. So don't worry. They're more willing to, okay, let's not use it at all. That's why the Fed introduces money through the financial system because it takes longer for them to spend it. Therefore, it takes longer for prices to rise. And so nobody notices. You see what ah, I'm saying? That, that, yeah. that's, if they introduce this through like what they did right now, kind of ish with the stimulus checks. The stimulus checks, yeah. Immediately, we just go buy stuff and then pushes prices right away. It doesn't take long. But when the Fed does this through the financial system, it actually takes a lot of, a lot of time because it's not like us that we're going to go spend it right away. So mm -hmm. fin since the money is given to financial uh, institutions, they take forever to spend whatever money they get. And so you can say that demand for money, which means uh, that the, uh, the desire to keep cash balances has increased by a lot because mm -hmm. we noticed 40% increase, but you know inflation only increased like 8%. So right. that's, that is tricky is that not all the money, in order for mm -hmm. prices to go up, and that was the, point, the, the, the key point of Mises when he was trying to define inflation, mm -hmm. it was increases in the money supply above the demand for money. Mm -hmm. Because if they increase the money supply and the demand for money increases also, then that's not going to affect prices because it's what it means in simple ways is they create new money and nobody spends it. Okay, what does that happen to prices? Nothing at all. And we gotcha. always should focus on, hey, what's happening to the demand for money? Is it really going to affect prices? If it doesn't, literally, where's the money? Uh, I think Jason, last, last time he, uh, that he was here, he was saying a lot of money was not spent. Later on when it's spent, we don't know at which stage of production is going to be spent. It's going to push up uh -huh. prices there and that can actually create malinvestments not when the money was created but later way down in the, the line. future yeah wow. exactly because it's because wow. it's still being mm -hmm. uh kind of like stored if you wish yeah so in demand for money guys study a lot 
because <laughs> the money supply is not everything. That that's right. the point. Literally, the Olivia and Mirly is like we don't talk about enough about the demand for money, and that actually yeah. matters a lot. No, and I was uh, I was thinking about our conversation uh, previously when we were talking about the, the Austrian don't read manager. I don't know mm -hmm. why. And um, Aidan and myself um, were talking about the that manager was really a free banker, right? And why we, he he was a free banker. I know maybe um, Norman is not that agree <laughs> with us. <laughs> because he's a buck more okay. Okay. <laughs> to, to our audience, to our audience, to our audience, guys. She's talking about the debate between 100% 100% reserves and fractional reserve banking. Just ah, okay. Yes. Ah, yes. And, but okay. explain, explain them why okay. we think the... that Manger is a free banker. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. No. I, I, I wasn't going to bring it up, okay? We can always blame it on Olivia. I love That's this. A... I love this. Okay. When, when, when she says, hey, can, can you look at this one? I don't know. When I was, reading, I was reading that passage, it says document money. And document money is what Mises called fiduciary media, which means the banks create more money than what they have in, in, uh, in reserve. And then I was looking for the word document money on that book and then it comes out of a passage that where you can see Menger was pretty much in favor of fractional reserve banking Ooh. but mm. we can live in peace with 100% because we're <laughs> Austrians and we all love each other and we all sing Kumbaya and all that kind of stuff <laughs> this, is, this is the fight that Austrian families have over the Thanksgiving dinner table there <laughs> <laughs> oh, you in How every language by the way against 100% reserves I, I, not... I think I think the LCI is gonna be divided. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> you know, I, it was hilarious. Honestly, I didn't expect it, but I didn't know. And some friends were telling me that in Brazil, among libertarians, like I think it was I think it was twenty twenty itself, since people where people were spending more time in, on on social mm -hmm. media. Like literally, what divided libertarians? I think they were looking for something to divide themselves just to entertain themselves. Yeah, we, oh, yeah, we got to yeah, argue something. about something. We find Everything something. in Brazil among libertarians was who was in favor of fraction or who was in favor. Of <laughs> <laughs> yes, I didn't know. That's I was completely surprised, honestly. Oh it was God. it was so But we can work together. We can all ha uh, hold hands yeah, and work yeah. together. But let it be said that Menger was in favor of fraction in Spanish. What's kumbaya in Spanish? And in, and in Portuguese too. I mean, you know, Portuguese. Shouldn't oh, right, right. yeah, get maybe, and that maybe, and that might be the next language that faith seeking freedom gets translated into. That's the goal. Yeah, yes. yeah. we're working on it slowly but surely. Olivia, Olivia also speaks uh, Portuguese, by the way. Yeah, but I'm not. I I wouldn't be there to translate into Portuguese. But, <laughs> but yeah, I do speak. I do speak in, Port in Portuguese because I live in Brazil like one year and a half. <laughs> well, well, that's yeah. enough. Sure. No, like, no, my God. Yeah. Tired. <laughs> she, she did survive. She did survive. She paid her bills in in Portuguese. She did. She worked in Portuguese. Yeah, she can actually handle. Well, that's Portuguese. longer than any of us. So. I know, we, right? Guys, we have connections. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> we got it. We got this. It's all good. Well, thanks, thanks, guys, for uh, for for doing this. I think we've we've spent a, a pretty hefty amount of time here. Yeah. Re really, only hitting like a couple issues, but this has been really fun. Yeah. Uh, so thanks to Olivia once again for joining us here and educating Thank us you. a little bit about some history of Austrian econ that we might not have known. Hey, and before we sign off, the recent posts on 
the uh, Libertarian yes. Christian Institute oh, yeah. website. Um, episode 269, Fel Failures in Public Health During the Pandemic with Dr. Mary Ruart. Yeah. Um, that is is up and ready for you to read. That was me um, interviewing her, by the way. That was <laughs> Yeah. You guys know. Um, we so have <laughs> two um, fairly recent articles. One is Singapore's economic su success, what we can learn from it. That's a pretty interesting one. Also, Aaron wrote one about how the Russian government uh, is not or was not imposing um, or going to the gold standard. He was imposing, Putin was pose, imposing capital controls. <laughs> and then Doug Stewart has a new um, uh, trying to be weekly, but so far biweekly um, uh, uh theme of articles called living free the most recent one is called advancing freedom requires focus on what matters so go check those out on the website that was really nice yeah and if you haven't already please do us a favor like this video or this podcast or whatever you're listening to this on and you know hit the, that subscribe button do all those nice things that all those really like actually you know youtubers that are trying to promote themselves really heavily do we don't really yes. know what to say we just want you guys here so thanks yep. for listening and we will see you next time.